All right, so we're going to um, wrap up a sermon series today that we've been in for several weeks. Uh, this is, um, we're going to be in chapter three and end in chapter four, start in three and end in four. Um, this resounding theme of the book of Colossians has been the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. He is above all things. Uh, he is Lord over all. He is, he, is, he is the authority over all of creation, right? And then about two chapters in, the apostle Paul says, now here's what that means for you. If he really is Lord, if he's all, this is how it was worded last week, and he's in all, meaning all his people, then that's a powerful thing. That's a transforming thing, right? That's where the old me is put to death and the new me is raised to walk in this, in this new life, the same way Jesus was resurrected, I've been resurrected by faith to walk in this new life in Christ. Well, today we're gonna look at how that redemption of Jesus transcends not just into my life, but into the fabric of our society, creating this gospel culture as God is restoring and redeeming all that was lost. And so, Let's start reading in verse 18 through verse 22, and then we'll stop and talk for a minute uh, about some of these things. So here we go, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. I just lost half the audience. (laughs) Just, hey, just bear with me, okay? Just bear with me. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves or bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, we've already covered several controversial topics. So, Here's what we're about to see today, and I'm gonna break this down and kind of talk us through some of these things, is that um, not only is Christ redeeming us as individuals, right, as as those who have by faith trusted in Christ as our savior, he's making all things new in me, he's restored me back into the image that I was created to be in the beginning, right, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God in goodness and righteousness, right, they had walked in fellowship with God, they were stewards over the earth, and now here I am as a recipient of the grace of Jesus, he's reforming me back into that. But not only that, and what we see in Genesis one and two is that God not only creates things and people to live amongst the things and the animals, but he creates a society with rules and, and with, 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 with a sense of law and a sense of justice. And, and, and there's, a, there's a fabric to the way that people are supposed to civilize with one another and interact with one another. We have roles and at the bedrock of of human society is this idea of hierarchy, authority and submission. Now, we're gonna walk through that in just a minute, but what we have to understand is that in Genesis three, all that was good and right was distorted, including not just the heart of man, but this hierarchy of authority and submission all gets distorted, all becomes tainted, all becomes dark and ugly, and then plays out among human history. Sometimes it's subtle and it's hard to see, other times it's glaring right in your face when we see authority and submission tainted by sin. Now today what we're gonna see is 
at the fabric of society are these three relationships. One is the relationship between the husband and the wife, and, and then second is the relationship between parents and children, and then we're gonna see, too, this relationship between workers and masters or employees and employers. Now, let's talk through some of this. First of all, let's talk about um, what's mentioned here is slavery because look, these verses have been hijacked throughout human history to justify vicious, um, vulgar, nasty, dark, cultural activities. And I'm not just talking about American history, but it's true in American history. I mean, going all the way back to the book of Exodus, the people of God were shackled as slaves and God was not endorsing slavery. He didn't endorse it then. He didn't endorse it in the United States in the 17th and 18th and 19th century where those who were in authority were, were beating and oppressing people into submission for the sake of profit. So when we read that here, the word of God is not justifying that activity, okay? There's a lot to be repentant of right, when authority goes wrong. But what we do see in those examples, and even today through like sex trade and, and human trafficking, is that when authority and submission are tainted by sin, it gets dark in a hurry. And, and we see this, you've seen it in your everyday life, maybe in more subtle ways, just at your job, where authority is tainted by sin, and it gets ugly, doesn't it? Right, people you can't trust or an authority over you and you're always looking for manipulation and what's around the corner and, right, so you know what authority looks like when it gets distorted. But what we have to start with is an understanding that in the garden, authority and submission were beautiful things. We were created to have a master and Lord. And any earthly expressions of authority and submission were created to reflect that relationship. Now, every generation of every human civilization, I would imagine, has had its uprisings of rebellion, right? Whether small or large, right? You can look at any generation, and there are those who, who push against the status quo, who rise up and, and, and essentially push against authority. We see some of it rooted in noble causes and some of it in noble causes, right? But what's happened over the last three generations is that has no longer... Has, is no longer the minority or a small group of people rising up to rebel, but beginning with the baby boomers, yeah, y'all started it, right? We see this, tra this trend where it's no longer a few, right? It's now becoming the whole culture. Now we get to millennials, right? And the idea of authority, right, no longer is a virtuous concept. For anybody to be in authority, the assumption is there's corruption involved, Right, so there's this baseline understanding in, among the millennials, and we'll talk more about you guys in just a minute. It's okay, we love you, we really do. Right, we do. And, and every, again, every generation has had its, its sinful bent and flaws, and, and, right, but this idea that there can't be any good versions of authority and submission, that seems to be a society norm today. We just assume if there's authority, there's corruption. If there's a boss, he, he's gotta have bad motives. If there's a manager, she's got an angle, and we just now assume that authority automatically equals corruption. And what, what we're gonna get at today is that what God created in terms of authority and submission in the garden was a good and beautiful thing, and it leads to human flourishing. And so now what Paul is gonna say is not only Christ, not only is he redeeming what has been broken in you, he's redeeming what has been broken in the fabric of society, and he's bringing it back together. 
And what we see throughout human history is that the gospel creates within a culture a subset culture. So even if you're not living in a Christian culture, you can still engage in a gospel culture on some level. I think one of the most beautiful examples of this, though it was painful and hard and dark, is the way that here in the United States, the African-American culture like engaged in worship and, 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 and with, with everything that they were, loved the Lord, some, some incredible worship tunes come out of that, that very painful and dark and evil oppressive time in the United States, right? Because within this oppressive culture were a group of people who said, I only have one master and Lord and he's Jesus. Yes, my, my earthly master may lord himself over me and try to rule me, but there's a ruler over my heart, and he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so within this oppressive culture is a subset culture, right, that is a gospel culture. You can see hints of this in Nazi Germany. We see it today in China, in the church, the underground church, where even though the society and the culture as a whole is bent and corrupt, right, by sin, within that culture there are believers. And it may just be a few who say, no, 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 no. The Lord Jesus Christ is my master, and I enjoy submitting to him. And so, as we move into this passage today, we begin first with marriage. Now, what I want to do is I want to go right back to Genesis 3. So, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything is not only good, it's very good. It's not corrupt. So, Eve found that submitting to Adam was life-giving. She loved it when things were right. And Adam found his role as a leader, leading Eve, right, in this humility and gentleness and compassion. He loved it when it was right. But at Genesis chapter three, everything changes. With with sin's entrance into the story of human history, everything gets twisted and corrupted. Everything that was created good now is not good. In Genesis chapter three, at the moment God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden, look at what he describes will now be corrupted going forward. It's no mistake that Paul's addressing these three relationships because look at what happens. Genesis 3, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your birth in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So that's not just the physical act of giving birth. That's the whole process of bringing children in the world and raising them up. It's painful, isn't it? That's a result of sin. It wasn't like that before the fall, okay? Then he moves from parenting relationships to marriage, and he says what? And your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desires, ladies, will be contrary to your husband's. Husbands are going, oh, now I get it. That's why she's always against me. It's part of the result of the fall for ladies to be skeptical of following a husband's lead, to question things, even to rebel against and to, and to not want to follow where he's leading. That's a result of sin in the woman's heart. And look at what he says to the men. Not only will the woman's desires be contrary to the husband, but he shall rule over you. That is an oppressive style of leadership and it is a result of the fall. It is not part of God's good creation. Men who lead in domination and and with oppression, whether it's their wives or the people who work for them, that's an expression of sin, right? So now I get it why whenever I say, wives submit to your husbands, everybody goes, because we've seen the corrupt version of those things, right? Right? 
And so not only will our parenting relationships be affected by by the fall, now this is gonna be painful, but our marriages are gonna be corrupted, her desires are gonna be against him, he's gonna fight to rule over her. But look at what he expresses next. And to Adam he said, verse 17, get ready buddy, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That's what work looks like because of the fall. It's gonna be painful. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna have to sweat. What, what was before sin, right, this enjoyable stewardship of all good things and simply just harvesting the goodness of what God had created, now guess what, Adam? You're gonna have to till the soil. You're gonna have to plant stuff. You're gonna have to fight through the thorns and weed it out. This is like primitive employment here. Work is going to be hard. It's an illusion to, to think that if I just get the right job, I finally love what I do. The reason they pay you is because you don't want to do it. That's what God's saying, Adam. You're not going to enjoy work anymore. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to get something out of it or you're not going to put anything into it. Work is going to be hard and this becomes corrupt as Adam realizes this. He's like, you know what? This stinks. I need some people to work for me. Right? How am I going to get that to happen? Well, I've got to either manipulate somebody, I've got to fool somebody, I've got to oppress somebody. Right? And then you see, you see what follows from there. That's why slavery was just such a, was such a common part of early human history. Not good and right, but it, why? Because people don't want to work hard, and so I need people to work hard for me. So I'm going to find a way to get them underneath me to do what I don't want to do. And then, that, then, you, then they realize, you know what, I can make a lot of money doing this. Then it turns into industry, and the rest is history, obviously. But at the moment of the fall, God says, listen, this is all going to get distorted. Parents and children, husbands and wives, man and work, it's all going to get distorted. But here's the good news of the gospel. Paul says, not only is Christ redeeming what is broken and corrupt in you, he's restoring the fabric of society. And even though the society you live in may be corrupt and bent towards sin, there's a subset culture that the gospel is creating for those who believe. And here's what's beautiful. It's really just getting you ready for heaven. There will be authority and submission in heaven. You know that, right? But it'll be a submission of joy when you bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ as your authority because it will be a restored version of authority. You with me? Not the corrupt version. You won't question his motives. You won't wonder what his angle is. You won't, right? You will joyfully submit to the Lord Jesus Christ because we were created for authority and submission. So those aren't bad words, church, when they're redeemed by the gospel. And so Paul says, wives, listen, I know you've experienced the corrupt version, but Jesus is restoring it. Submit to your husbands and it'll be a good thing. So let's talk through some of these things. Let's start with parenting. This will be fun. So, yeah. So parenting twisted by sin plays out in some really ugly ways. Um, I think in like my grandparents' generation and going back, it was more barbaric and there was a whole lot more abuse. It was just kind of like accepted. On, on some levels, and I'm not just talking about spanking your kids, I'm talking about all that abuse, at least from the stories I hear. Now, that still happens today, 
and it's just as wrong, but it, it's a little bit more rare to, right, for parents wholesale to try to, to parent their children in oppressive, abusive relationships. Now, that's been traded for something that is equally harmful, and it's this idea of either the, the snowplow parenting or the overpassive parenting. Both are equally damaging to the children. So what, what do we mean by that? Well, snowplow parenting, um, this is like 2.0 of what used to be helicopter parenting when I was a kid. You guys kind of remember first hearing that? You're like, oh, that's what that is. You, I know that lady. She hovers around her kid like a helicopter, right, just trying to make sure everything's taken care of, and little Johnny never gets upset. Now that's been replaced with snowplow parenting, where mom and dad are on the ground, out front, just blazing a trail for the kids so kids never become uncomfortable. And we saw this scandal just break, you know, a month or two ago, right, this college entrance scandal. What was parents were making a way for their kids, trying to make it easy, instead of letting kids struggle and take the risk of either making it or not making it. Parents don't want their kids to be uncomfortable. They try to take the risk out of it and let little Johnny succeed. And it's equally damaging to children. And so that was, those are some expressions of twisted, sinful parenting. But what Paul is saying is that Redeemed by Christ, though, parents lead their children with justice and mercy. Good parenting means intentionally leading your children into hard situations in which they may be uncomfortable or even fearful or even encounter pain. It's good parenting. Now, not for the sake of being mean, not for the sake of trying to right, oppress them, but good parenting means allowing your children to experience hard things, right? So like, I, this is a reflection of how God parents us. He leads us both into the valley of the shadow of death and into green pastures. Like somebody was listening to Christian radio this week and they almost had it right. They're like, yeah, God doesn't create pain. He doesn't create suffering. He doesn't, you know, it's all created by evil. Now I agree, evil is involved in most expressions of suffering. God doesn't create it, but he leads us into it. Right? And that's good parenting. Right? And we have to discern as parents when that's the right risk to take. And it may be one way with one kid and one way with another, but that's good parenting. Not snowplow parenting thinking that if little Johnny encounters anything difficult in his life, he's doomed to end up in prison or fail or not succeed. No, you want Johnny to succeed, let little Johnny experience the hard things in life. That might mean being aware that a pet is having to be put down rather than lying to little Johnny so you don't upset him. That might mean letting little Johnny fail a six weeks at school. You with me? The snowplow parent gets out in front. It's like, what do I got to do? I got to take care of him. I got to keep him on his grades. I got to make sure he does his homework. Like, it's okay to let your kids fail every now and then. See, good parenting, the way God parents, is this beautiful um, merging of both justice and mercy. And the discernment to know when to apply which. And it's difficult, parents. Hallie and I have this conversation all the time. Are we being too hard or are we being too soft? We're always having to evaluate that merging of those two things, justice and mercy. Justice means the rules are clear. This is the law of our house. And here are the results when you break the law. We don't just make it up on the fly, right? That's, that's good parenting. Wait a second, I got a spanking for it last time and this time you're like, no, like here's the rule and here's the result. 
Now, that doesn't fix a kid's heart, but it teaches them the result of breaking the law. Jesus has to change their heart, okay? Equally so, though, there are times as a parent to be graceful and to be merciful. I love it whenever, so we try, we try to teach our boys this, right? And so <laughs> our philosophy is when there's a hardness of heart and no sense of brokenness over what they've done, that's the time for the law. Because the law awakens us, right? But when their hearts are broken, like shattered, and they're in repentance, they don't need more law, they need mercy and grace. <laughs> I love how my kids are trying to navigate this and then they like to try to determine what they need in the moment. <laughs> I won't mention any names, but one of my boys, I'll never forget, we were trying to teach this concept, and, uh, and one particular time, we go to the bedroom for discipline, and I always sit down on the floor. I think it's important for me as a leader to be on their level, like not, you know, trying to intimidate them, but to be on their level. So I always sit down, put my back against the door, and they know, uh-oh, A, I can't get out the door because dad's back's against the door, but B, we're about to get real. And so I'm laying it out, here's why we're in the room, and then one of my boys is like, hey, I got an idea, how about Grace? Who taught you that? No. You're not getting grace. Why? Because your heart's not broken. You're getting the law. And then when your heart breaks, then you'll have some grace. But like good parenting is this merging together of both. Why? Because it's a reflection of who God is as a parent. We see parenting today has been corrupt by sin, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure on us as parents. We've been... I mean, we've been ridiculed in, in several ways as parents because we, we try to, to, to parent based on scriptural principles and things like we don't sign our kids up for more than one thing at a time. What? Your kids don't want to play more than one sport at a time? No, they want to. We just don't do it. Sometimes we'll make them skip a whole season. <gasps> it's abuse. So mean. Seriously, like, I know we're making, but that's, that's the pressure we feel. Like, we get that reaction sometimes. You made your kid choose? You made your kid skip all-stars? Yeah. It's okay. He's going to be all right. If he's not all right, it's not going to be because of that. It's going to be because of something else. Too much grace and not enough justice. But here's the point. Like, Regardless of the way culture is going, as recipients of the gospel, we can participate in a subset culture that says, no, this is the right expression of parenting. There is, a, there is a version of authority and submission that is good and right. Of course, there's absentee parenting, which is where they try to, you, your parents try to make their kids their friends, and ultimately they're thinking, well, I, parenting's too hard, let's just do this, and then it ends up backfiring, and it's just one bug, big, ugly mess. But, but the point is, Jesus is redeeming this relational paradigm within the fabric of the gospel culture. So, parenting. Marriage, again, the wife's desires will run against the grain of her husband's leadership. Whether he wants the right thing or not, there's just something within the broken woman's heart that just doesn't want to follow because she's seen corrupt leadership right? She's hesitant. She's skeptical because she even knows her own heart and has a hard times trusting her own heart. So why would she trust somebody else's? So this idea of submission, right, is barbaric. It's archaic. It can't be good. But redeemed by Jesus, it is a beautiful thing and it leads to flourishing. And ladies, if you want your husbands to lead you in the Lord, and that's the phrase here, as is fitting in the Lord, right, there's got to be a willingness to follow. You can't just say, I just want my husband to step up and be a leader. Okay, that means you've got to be willing to find joy in your follow role. And then husbands, 
love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You see how he's not just calling out these roles, he's given instruction. This harsh version of husband leadership is the result of sin. Again, throughout human history, verses like this have been used to justify corrupt, dark leadership. That's not the culture of the gospel. The culture of the gospel, husband, you know what leadership looks like? It's tempered in humility and compassion and self-sacrifice. Right? That's hard to do without Christ. But in Christ, we are called as husbands to lay our lives down for our wives on a daily basis. And what Paul is saying is, listen, this is how things were created in the garden. Adam and Eve, the idea of being parents was a joyful thing. Eve found joy in following Adam's leadership and he found joy in leading and laying his life down for Eve until when? Until the leadership hierarchy got out of whack and sent her to the equation. I, I struggle, I struggle like really pinpointing the first moment of sin because Adam was with Eve. Yes, she ate, she took, she gave to her husband. Listen, who was with her? Right, so he's already failing in his leadership role to protect Eve, to stand in the way between Eve and danger, right? So he's leading her passively out of the picture and what happens? The whole fabric of God's good creation unravels. This is why when God comes to confront Adam and Eve, who does he speak to first? Why? Because Adam had left his post as the leader. And so all this is being redeemed in Christ. Wives will willingly and joyfully follow their husband's leadership without losing their identity or their sense of value, their competency, like like none of that stuff is being challenged in Christ and the husband will lead his wife by humble with humility and compassion, laying his life down for his wife daily in a way that reflects, listen to this, the leadership of Jesus. Why, because we were created to follow Jesus. We were created for a master bondservant relationship where the master is a righteous king and his leadership leads to flourishing and joy and life for those who submit and follow. This is why at almost every letter Paul writes to a church, he introduces himself as what? A bondservant. Because he's saying what? Jesus redeems the concept of bondservant. I love following Lord Jesus. He is my master. We all know what the master-servant relationship can look like when twisted by sin, whether that's, again, the Hebrews under Egyptian slavery, the 17th, 18th, 19th century in the United States, human trafficking, sex trade, all these expressions of oppressive, dark, twisted master bond servant relationships but redeemed by Christ and this is where Paul is going now let me before I say that let me just kind of lay some work here this is a different version in this culture this bond servant relationship is different from what we typically think of as Americans in terms of slavery okay most of those who were bond servants in this culture to begin with were not kidnapped out of their, their villages, their tribes, their hometowns, and forced onto a ship and taken, right, if they lived to another country to serve in shackles and to be beaten as objects. 
Most, this is a different cultural expression of bondservant. These were folks who found themselves in debt they couldn't pay back, right? And so, it's, so it wasn't a, 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 a culture that had credit and you could just finance. Like, so you're like, I don't have any money, I can't pay you back, so I can come live with you then in your household and I'll serve you and I'll, I'll work for you, right? But you'll feed me and take care of me and my family, so we're bondservants, we're bonded to you in that way. Right? So that's different from, right, what we saw here in American history or what we see today, again, in human trafficking in those forms. So when we think of slavery, don't automatically picture what we, what we might think of as Americans. That being said, I think it's probably more accurate to think of the employee-employer relationship, at least the way Paul's talking about it here, okay? And so as he gives us counsel, he says, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. What is he saying? Listen, Christian, gospel culture, your boss may be corrupt, untrustworthy, but you don't work for him, you don't work for her. You show up every day and you work for the Lord Jesus Christ. You represent him. You with me? And so Christ is redeeming this thing that has been corrupted. Work heartily. Now that's not the idea of becoming obsessed with your career, sacrificing your family to, to, to climb the corporate ladder. That's not what he's describing here. He's describing working with all your heart at something as though you're working for the Lord. That means working with integrity, working with honesty, taking responsibility for a job well done. My grandfather always taught me if it's worth doing, it's worth doing. Yeah, see people from that culture know that phrase. Millennials, you do well to learn that phrase. If it's worth your time, it's worth doing it right. Now I'm picking on millennials as a culture, right? But again, because when Christ redeems us, now we're in the gospel culture. So just if you're, because you're a millennial in this room doesn't mean you're like this, but the culture today is like this, right? Drives me bonkers to see people who are employed by a business walk by trash on the floor. Drives me crazy. It's not my job, it's not my job description. Well, let's put in your job description. Right, let's add a bullet point. Anything that needs to be done shall be done by you. That's right. We're laughing, but you see it in our culture today. Oh, that's not my job description. Yep. What do you mean it's not your job description? You work here, right? Like you're gonna get a paycheck at the end of the week for your time. Pick up the trash. Seriously, take responsibility. Be willing to do things that others aren't willing to do. Be willing to take on tasks that don't result in applause or praise. That's what it means to be a part of the gospel culture. Work at it as though you're working for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because your reward is not your paycheck. You've got a better reward coming. Picking up trash is easy for the reward that you've got coming. What is the reward? Look, he says it. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is your reward. Eternity is your reward. An inheritance from Jesus is your reward, Christ follower, not your paycheck. And so regardless of what job you have, what industry you're in, or whether or not the hierarchy of your work environment is corrupt or good, 
you're to work at it as though who is your master? Jesus. I don't mind picking up trash for Jesus. I don't mind going the extra mile for Jesus, right? I don't mind doing things that aren't on my job description for Jesus. You see how the gospel creates this culture within a culture. And what Paul is saying is, listen, Christ followers, Jesus is not only redeeming you, but he's redeeming, he's redeeming the culture that was the garden, and he's preparing us for what is to come, our ultimate eternal inheritance. And so we get this instruction on these relationships, again, children and parents, husbands and wives, employees and employers. Verse one of chapter four, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. First of all, this reference here to masters, business owners, managers, employers, many of you in this room hold those kind of positions. The instruction here is see your leadership role as an opportunity to reflect God's character, God's leadership, God's justice, God's righteousness, and God's impartiality to those whom you lead. But the bigger point of all of this is that all of the leadership structures of culture and society are meant to be a reflection of the relationship between man and God. Whether it's marriage or parenting or working, Right, when we engage in this gospel culture, this redeemed version of what has been corrupt, whether it's parenting, marriage, or work, we serve, our lives serve as a reflection of something that is good and right. When you see somebody like working heartily at their job as though they're working for Jesus and what you're seeing is a reflection of what has been in the garden and what will be in eternity. A good and right authority and submission relationship. Our earthly leadership and fellowship roles should serve as a reflection of the goodness of God and his lordship over our lives as we walk in redemption as image bearers. Whether you are a leader in your job or not, we are all followers first, right? Every master has a master. We're all followers first. So display a willing attitude towards the leaders in your life and bear the image of God in what you do. Because Christ is all and he is in all. I want to land here today, um, land a little bit differently. I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to listen to um, Jason Martin share his heart, not just on the surgery that's coming up, but what God's doing in his heart, what God's doing in our church. I wanted you to get to hear from him um, before he goes into surgery, and then, um, then he'll take several weeks off, um, eight to 12 weeks, maybe 12 weeks off. Um, I want to call us to pray for and support in the Martin family. It's not going to be easy. Um, you know, having dad down means Jordan's going to be leading the home by herself in many respects. And so let's pray for her. Let's pray for him. Let's rally around them and support them in any way that they need it, okay? But I want you to hear his heart as he gets ready to go into this. I'm going to pray. We're going to listen to a little bit of his heart, and then we're going to respond. Uh, when we're done watching the video, prayer partners will be in the room. We'd love to pray for you, pray with you. Um, and then we'll stand a scene together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the way that you tell us that Christ is not only all, but he is in all and he is redeeming all that you have created good. God, we recognize this morning that in the garden before sin, that these, these expressions of authority and submission were good and right and led to human flourishing. Adam leading his wife in self-sacrifice and Eve following in submission, his leadership was a beautiful life-giving thing. Parents leading their children in mercy and justice and children respecting and obeying their parents was a beautiful and a good thing. Masters and, 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 and servants, God, 
working in such a way that there's this beautiful expression of joy and, and a reflection of our relationship to you, God. When you gave Adam and Eve this, this command to have dominion over the earth, it was a dominion tempered with humility and grace and mercy and compassion, not the oppressive version we see today that's corrupted by sin. Father, thank you that you are restoring all that has been lost through sin. Thank you that as recipients of the gospel, you're restoring that in us and our relationships with one another and our relationship with the society around us, God. We don't have to go with the flow of status quo, God. We can truly be a part of your redemption, this gospel culture that does things differently. So Father, continue to do that work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' powerful name. My name is Jason Martin. I'm the worship minister here at Solid Rock. Um, for almost four years, I've been the worship minister. About 12 years, I've been a part of the worship team. So it's been a really amazing journey, and it goes back even even further than that for me. Um, you know, I want to start off with with really emphasizing that God uses the weak to lead the strong. And, and what I mean by that is just from the very beginning, the first time I ever had a gig scheduled was about 21 years ago. And it was about the same time that I really trusted in God. Um, and in that time, what happened was you know, I was faced with a really challenging situation where I was in the hospital for a really severe case of pneumonia. And in that time, they told my parents um, that I probably wasn't going to make it through that. It was the, the chances were really slim. They had no idea what was going on. Um, but all that to say that I started off my singing career really with one and a half lungs. They ended up having to, to remove a portion of my lungs. So right from the get-go, uh, climbing uphill is what it felt like and eventually led me to solid rock. And and through the, the initial first few years that I was on the worship team, I was still in the in the country music scene, uh, doing doing my thing there, trying to make it, I guess. Um, but that really wasn't me. It didn't. I didn't like promoting myself or doing any of that kind of stuff. But once once I took over the worship minister position, about the same time I started feeling some pain um, in my hips, and and it started becoming worse and worse and worse. And as a lot of you know. Uh, you see me walking around here from Sunday to Sunday. Um, it's it's gotten really bad, and what it what it reminds me of, though, it's it, aside from being discouraging and letting the human part of us really take over and and be discouraged. I try to set my mind on the things above, and and whether it's your hips or a, a severe diagnosis of something else. Uh, there's a song we wrote last year. It's called Remind Me, and we've been doing it here um, for a little while. Uh, the verse that that comes from is Isaiah 26, 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And that, that first line, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, is something that, you know, we wrote that as, as a team together. Um, to, to put out here in front of the congregation, but what an encouragement when you wake up every day with, with whether it be chronic pain or, or some kind of other affliction, when our mind is stayed on Christ, when our mind 
and, and our hearts are focused on God. There's nothing that we can't do that He calls us to. There is so much encouragement in knowing that peace and joy will come from resting in Him. And, and I just want to encourage anybody else who's walking through something today. Um, I'm going to be gone for about 12 weeks uh, recovering from double hip replacement. Uh, but it's an encouragement to, to know that God uses the weak to lead the strong. Um, just seeing Sunday to Sunday the Spirit move in this room and, and getting to see the work that God has already done and has been doing and knowing that He is faithful and He is continuing to work regardless of any situation. And then I see this and, and I know what I'm going through and I just it excites me because I know that He uses the weak to lead the strong. And here's just another thing. Um, God uses every bit of what He gives us to glorify Himself. And I'm really excited and encouraged to, uh, to see the work that God is going to continue to do here at Solid Rock. Yeah.